Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Stephen. I'm Dan. I'm Nathan. And I'm James. Hey! hey. We've got Nathan <laughs> and James this time for Ghost Light. Chaps, oh, how are we? Really well. <laughs> Good to hear. Oh man, so we're so happy to have you guys with us. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you guys all the way from Sydney. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. We're completely out of practice with the podcasting mm, thing, aren't yeah, we? we? Well, we flew in specially. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we often ask guests who come to our show, just when we start, we often ask, um, ask them to tell us the little story about how they got into Doctor Who in the first place. Oh, look, I mean, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't watching Doctor Who. I think I started, must have been 83, 84 sitting on my father's lap the first the first story i can remember is the five doctors oh wow <laughs> that's really cute um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it was the first broadcast i think it was the repeat um after the abc you know went off because of the electrical store yeah yeah in sydney yeah no i remember that very well i'm uh, a few months older than jane <laughs> yeah you don't look at but um but i do remember that storm and having to sort of rush outside and take the clothes off the line and being really really angry about missing <laughs> sort of precious minutes of uh, five doctors which i would clearly never have the opportunity to see never again. ever again. And, and, and then it, there was blackout so you didn't get to see it for another sort of what was it three it's or four a, weeks yeah, yeah. wow um so yeah, look, that we had that on VHS, which I wore to death <laughs> <laughs> as a child. It had this strange um, voiceover from someone like you know John Logan, one of those ABC news announcers. I remember announcers, it well. Yeah, um, with that sort of you know that wonderful sort of honeyed voice. <laughs> uh, um, and they, they labelled the segment "Out of This World," which oh wow, oh, I don't yeah. remember that. Wow, that's um, amazing. It was it was bizarre, but I mean, like I, it, that that is a very vivid memory. I don't know whether that memory is, you know, the actual memory or whether it's just the fact that I watched that tape to death. But, um, so, yeah, that's 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 my earliest memory of Doctor Who. Oh wow, Lovely. that's really sweet. What about you, Nathan? How what's your involvement? How did it all begin? Um, well, I can actually date mine to I think it was like June or July 1978, and I was in. Um, fourth class at school and a friend of mine had brought in the Doctor Who monster book and we used (laughs) to read it under the desk during class and I was absolutely fascinated by it even though like I'd heard of Doctor Who because it was on at 6.30 every night but I'd never watched it Um, and so I was really really interested and he told me one day that Death to the Daleks was on the Daleks were going to be on it uh, that night and obviously it was a repeat and so I tuned in and watched Death to the Daleks and and was completely hooked <laughs> from then on. And in fact, when we did Death to the Daleks for FTE, I wasn't, you know, I was not expecting to enjoy it. But episode one of Death to the Daleks is really great. It's super <laughs> atmospheric and scary and stuff. And really, really quite scary, I think, for a sort of 10-year-old. And so, um, yeah, that was it. I went back and looked at the sort of air dates guide and discovered exactly what day. It was like June the something, 1978. Wow. was uh, the first time oh, I watched wow. it. Wow, you've got the date. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Oh, great. So, Ghostlight, 1989. Yeah, Dan, this is one of your favourite eras yeah. of Doctor Who. Yeah. 
Oh, I mean, I remember watching it when it was on TV for the first time in England when it was being, when it was airing. For the when first you time. were living in Perryvale? Uh, actually, yeah, yeah, that's right. We were in Perryvale. It's a nickname, time. Ace. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my that's my nickname. Um, and they, and um, I just remember it scared the pants off of me. I just mm-hmm. and we've got so we've got uh, Sylvester McCoy as our seventh Doctor and um, Sophie Eldred as Ace, which is probably my favorite combo. Quite a team of all time. Great team. Yeah, I think they're amazing as well. I don't think. Like, uh, neither of them are, you know, among the very best actors to be regular <laughs> cast members of Doctor Who. But both of them are so likeable and their relationship is so great. Yeah. And, and they get and a, so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Even even though it's very dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look, I think, that's, I, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they were very good friends by their second season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they, 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 you know, they, it's been widely discussed that they were born on the same day many years apart mm-hmm. yeah and they they became quite firm friends very quickly after after sophie came on board and i think you can tell that yeah I, yeah i think so and i think the writing helps because the more i watch these these ones for um for our podcast um f- uh, for the first time in a long time i notice how much uh how much banter they get and i mean and their chemistry definitely helps but the writing they just get a lot more banter than i they remember they're always laughing and joking with each other mm. little, little lines hit through it thrown here and there and I, it really helps i really love that i think it also helps that the um the episodes are always over overrunning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so, so notoriously overrunning to the point where you know you have a whole episode oh. worth of cut scenes so on true. on the um the cutting room floor yeah. and so what you get left is just so Pacey and um, condensed. Sometimes non- nonsensical. <laughs> yes, yes, and in, in, in this case, quite nonsensical. <laughs> All right, so so we've talked about our TARDIS team. On the other side, behind the camera, our production team, it continues to be JNT, John mm. Nathan Turner is the producer, so this actually was the very last serial or, or story to be recorded by mm. the BBC, so in that regard it's a piece of history in terms of classic Doctor Who, the very sure. last to be recorded. And uh, and so I guess this is JNT's last story, going all the way back from 1980, he started through to 1989, almost a decade's worth of, of, of material that he was producer for. He's the longest serving producer, right? Oh, by far and far. away, yeah. yeah. Um, and the script editor... Ah, <laughs> the the one, the only um, Andrew Cartmel. Yeah, he uh, came in, kind of like made a kind of a clean sweep of the whole thing. I guess is, is did he take over from Saywood after the he end did. of trial? Yeah, and as you say, just you know, sort about putting together an entirely new writing team yeah. and took the the direction of the show into a completely new horizon. And that, it's wonderful to see. I think we get some really fantastic stories during his three years. Yeah, man, does that man does that does that writer shuffle show in these two these seasons? Like, uh, he just did such a good job. It was always this complaint, wasn't it, from Sayward that he couldn't find people who could write for Doctor Who mm. and he was constantly just sort of <laughs> going back to the small number of tried and true people that he had. Mm. And then Cartmel comes in and brings in all these young people with him who've never written for the show before. Yeah. And um, it's amazing. I mean, the quality... There's just so much more thought about what Doctor Who should be. It's as if for the first time in a very, very long time, uh, someone has sat down with a group of writers and thought, you know, what is the Doctor like? What motivates (laughs) him? What sort of story should we be telling? 
And given that the show had just been kind of being made out of habit for such a yeah. long time, it really is so refreshing. The The shame of it is, of course, that it comes far, far too late and lots of people my age had kind of just stopped watching. And so there are plenty of people who, you know, watched a lot of Doctor Who, even in the 80s, but never made it as far as Sylvester McCoy. Oh. And so... I think he is a bit of an unsung hero, and so is Andrew Cartmell. Mm. It's a great three years, even even season twenty four, which has all kinds of problems. Mm. You know, Sylvester McCoy's first season is so incredibly new and refreshing. Mm. So weird. No, there's some incredible stories. I mean, I find that it's it's one of those great production teams. I think we start with an incredible dream team with Verity Lambert and David Whitaker, mm. and I think we end with another one, certainly with Andrew Cartmel at the at the helm in terms of his creative direction. There's an incredible array of writers. Ben Aronovich is, yeah. is, is someone that we've looked at before with Remembrance of the Daleks. Totally. Uh, Ian Briggs, you know, who created the character of Ace, gave mm. us Curse of Fenric. So two stories, incredible stories that we've looked at already. And, and so one of the writers that Andrew Cartmel brings on board is Mark Platt, who is obviously the writer here for Ghostlight. Um, he's also been involved in the Doctor Who universe, sort of going on from that point as well. Apparently he's a huge Doctor Who fan from childhood, which I didn't know before. I mm. just was just reading about him recently. Uh, he was such a big fan that when he in the set, when he got to um, Pertwee and Baker, he started bringing a portable TV to work so he could watch it <laughs> at work. <laughs> I, be, I believe he also um, he pitched stories to Hinchcliffe. Oh, in, oh wow! In the early seventies yeah. as well. I think this, along with Andrew Smith's Full Circle, is kind of like the first kind of fan, you know, uh, the first script sent in by a fan and subsequently produced. But he'd been doing it for ages. It had been sort of a dream of his, and you know, he goes on to novelise Battlefield when Ben Aronovich is word processor blows up or something. <laughs> Is that why that happened? Yeah. So, and, you know, it's done heaps of stuff for Big Finish, including Spare Parts, which, mm, uh, you know, is the Cyberman origin story, which is just one of the best things that they ever did. Yeah, he's really something. Mm. And uh, this script is is really amazing and so ambitious, you know, um, even for this era, which has a fair amount of ambition. This, you know, tries to do things that are so interesting and so much more interesting even than some of the surrounding stories. I always look forward to whenever Doctor Who goes back and does um, a period piece in which they've got so much experience uh, with costumes hmm. and set design and they can d- just do it really well. But when they do it, ag- like uh, nowadays when they do it again, I always look forward to it because I just want to kind of get some of that ghost light magic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's never quite the same. I don't know what they did to make it so special, but it's just this one feels really good. I think they underlit it. Yeah. Um, over music and under lit <laughs> and under mic'd <laughs> yeah it's so under mic'd but that's something that I, that's something I noticed when watching a bu- we were watching a bunch of Davison recently and then even some um, some Colin Baker it was really like the, the lighting is really so flat garish, yeah. very flat very bright studio lighting and then once you get into McCoy that starts to change. They, they've sort of changed the, the lights and made them a little moodier or just a, just different, like yeah. not the same every shot. And I think the director, Alan Waring, has got a lot of credit for that, I think. I mean, he brings so much of the atmosphere through his visuals here. And I think a key part of that is something as simple, well, seemingly simple as, as underlighting, as you say. Mm. Well, I think that Alan Waring is maybe the sort of second best director of the 1980s. You know, him and mm. Graham Hart, oh, Alan yeah. Waring. Because Waring does 
greatest show of the galaxy yes. and of course survival hmm. um and he's really stylish his camera's really mobile and and really interesting you know it's still very clearly a studio set but it's not the sort of locked off three camera thing that we're yes. used hmm. to it's much much more carefully choreographed i think and that fits with the uh, theme of the story hmm. Okay, Steve, so if you were going to sum up this story in a, in a magically marvellous uh, single sentence, what would that sentence be? Uh, it wouldn't be this. It's in Victorian-era Perivale, Ace is brought by the Doctor to a sinister haunted house that spooked her as a kid, only to be confronted with his terrifying mysteries that lurk within. Mm. This is really much a, ha- a haunted house story, isn't it? Sure, I think um, so. You know, growing up as a kid, there was a de- derelict house, you know, on the outskirts of town that uh, my friends and I would visit, and that sort of uh, sort of childish glee about, um, you know, traversing through something that is, you know, a bit dangerous and a, a little bit unknown, and you know what, you know, sort of the power of imagination, and you know what could possibly be lurking within. I get that same feeling when I when I watch Ghostlight as well. Yeah. Something about about this house is unbelievably creepy, and I just love the the overall feel of it. Are we? I can. I feel like I can feel the walls closing in on me, Steve. All these impossibly, extremely fake and not scary animals lining the walls, and oh, I'm, I think I'm starting to lose it. Are they coming to life? Uh, and uh, with that, um, with that hammy interlude, we're in Spoiler Town. So I'm gonna. I want to just talk about when the Doctor and Ace first arrive because you know how James before said that lots of things get cut out. I reckon there's real evidence that stuff's been cut out here and there is something really cool about the way the Doctor introduces Ace to this story. So the idea is there's some kind of initiative test and it's never made exactly clear what that is and the Doctor is... um, testing Ace and Ace has to work out what's going on and they turn up in this observatory and the very first thing Ace picks up is this um, toy. It's sort of a tin clockwork toy full of little mechanical figures going around in an ice rink and it's mentioned in the novelization as well. And so right from the get-go, the very first thing that she picks up is this thing that reflects what's going on in the house. Like, um, everything is sort of so well thought out. And we've, we're going to go on and see that this house is occupied by a whole host of sort of characters and stuff, all of whom are like clockwork toys. And it's the whole thing is so brilliantly choreographed and, and um, everyone moves in this sort of inhuman mechanical way and it's incredible that there are so few people that just sort of behave like normal people um you know the the characters are you know sort of exaggerated and sort of strange and you know mechanical and creepy sort of zombie-like almost I love those maids to come out of the um, come out of the doorways like they've been standing there the whole time. Isn't it creepy? It's yeah, like, yeah. The, the the clock strikes six. The yeah, doors like a, open like a cuckoo clock. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so great. Um, and you were talking about that initiative test at the start. I love that. I love when they do that in Doctor Who. It doesn't happen super often. It, does, it happens like more now in the modern show, I think. But when he's sort of doing a "Where are we? When are we?" kind of like yeah. quiz with her. Have they done? Is that the first time they ever did it? 
Surely they must done it. They did it before. I, I think it's the first in the sense that what we have in terms of the doctor and companion dynamic is almost like a mentoring mm. one. Where, and we can talk about this later in terms of what the end result or the the end game of that was meant to be. But I think the the, the show now starts to become as much as about the companion as the doctor, yeah. and that hasn't happened before. And I think what we have here is is McCoy's doctor trying to coach or mentor, um, you know, Sophie Aldred's ace as perhaps someone who maybe can do a job that uh, that he's been doing for centuries. It's so fun. It's so fun watching them do that. Mm. Look, I and I mean, and this has been this is like been said so many times before, but it, I mean, season. 26 is the prototype for the new series. At yeah. least Russell's version of the new series. Mm-hmm. A character from contemporary London being shown the universe and you know, becoming a better person for mm. it. Um, and, I mean, look, survival is the apotheosis of that, obviously. But um, this you know, this is like Doctor Who doing something much more sort of modern with, yeah. with the way that... Um, at least what we assume is, is, is how Doctor Who worked it's it's not very common, maybe apart from companion introduction stories, for the whole kind of emotional thing to kind of hang off the companion. You know, this is a, a story where the companion learns something about her past, like confronts something from her past. And so the plot becomes, in a real way, about her, whereas... Mm. The normal sort of Doctor Who thing up to now is the Doctor and the Companion arrive and, you know, experience something and solve it and go after sort of undergoing some perils. Mm. But that there's a scene in episode one where the Doctor and Ace kind of discuss what they fear or hate. It's true, isn't it? This is the house I told you about. When you were 13, you climbed over the wall for a dare. That's your surprise, isn't it? Bringing me back here. Remind me what it was that you sensed when you entered this deserted house. An aura of intense evil? Don't you have things you hate? I can't stand burnt toast. I loathe bus stations, terrible places, full of lost luggage and lost souls. I told you I never wanted to come back here again. And then, this unrequited love and tyranny and cruelty. Too right. We all have a universe of our own terrors to face. I face mine on my own terms. But don't you want to know what happened here? No! You've learned something you didn't recognise when you were 13. Like what? The nature of the horror that you sensed here. It's alien. I don't think there's been anything quite like that. And it's a super well-written scene as well. Mm. I think, you know, the Doctor... Because it turns out that the initiative test is actually a fraud. You know, the Doctor hasn't brought Ace there so much to learn about how to become, you know, a better kind of uh, time traveller. He just wants to see what happens when she's confronted with this scary thing from her past that she has disclosed to him. And he hasn't said, well, why don't we go and confront that? He's just <laughs> said, we, I'm going to dump you in that. Mm. I'm going to pretend it's a game. And then you're going to find out the name of the house. Like she learns that they're in a house called Gabriel Chase in Perivale, but she doesn't know that at the beginning because she's mm. kind of supposed to find out where she is. And she runs off and and her and the doctor have this incredible conversation. And he says the things that he hate include sort of 
tyranny and cruelty and her response is too right yeah i hate cruelty as well because that's what i'm experiencing yeah. from you yeah. right now yeah very much so i mean yeah it's it's almost like in, in fenric where she's um she has a go at him for never explaining things to her and always mm. leaving her out of the loop it's the same similar kind of thing and um uh, like what we were saying about, um, it's, it's. I think it's like strange for Doctor Who to even explore the relationship between the Doctor and the um, and the companion. It's unusual at this point. I think in the eighties, like we, they've never really. It's never. They been, don't really give um give the the companions don't get a lot of development over the time. No, you're absolutely right. So I mean, it, this this is this story, and in fact, the last two three seasons uh, are about the Doctor and the companion, and that hasn't happened before. I mean, we've had plot points where the characters involved, and you know, a couple of months ago we looked at uh, Enlightenment, where Turlo's choice, I guess, is is sort of um, central to the resolution of that plot. Mm. But it's something that's quickly forgotten, and the dynamic between the yeah. Doctor and Tur- the Tur- and Turlo sort of feels like things, it's reset. At that things point. go back to like. Back to the back to normal, like a sitcom. Like, think, you can, yeah, like, like, like nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas this is very much about that sort of um, character-driven, character-focused storytelling of you know the Seventh Doctor and Ace, and and I think that's what makes it feel so fresh and um, you know um, something that we can look at and say that actually has a lot of parallels to New Who. And I mean the story. I mean the Ghostlight story as a Doctor Who story works fine even without the the Ace like the the ace gabriel chase subplot like it works just like a regular clockwork doctor who episode but with that extra layer on top it just makes it so much more it's so great yeah i think that's what i was reaching for with the you know parallels to modern who is sure. that you know like they they're actually focusing on their relationship yeah. um more than say like you say it's doctor who is really actually about the characters it's usually about the situations yeah uh, peril and jeopardy and yeah, yeah, yeah. a big monster at the end of episode basically. one and this really sort of sets up i guess a, a storytelling technique that we'll see particularly going into the 90s with the new adventures which is the doctor as being a manipulator mm. and someone who seems to be you know four or five moves ahead in terms of the chess match and we kind of saw that in fenric as well mm. Um, and, and here it's, I think it's just starting, or at least it's in, it's in the initial phases. Um, you know, this, this is a doctor who, uh, you know, seems to have some sort of end in sight. I don't think he's got the plan fully formulated, <laughs> and I think he can't because obviously that's what gives the drama to the story. But, you know, the doctor himself seems to, in these last few seasons, grow as a character or at least be taken into new different direction. directions that we haven't seen before. You know, McCoy's doctor as the manipulator is something that I find particularly intriguing. It's not that the doctor has to be like that all the time, but in this Incarnation. I think there's great dramatic interest that results from it. I think they actually do it again, too. In episode two, um, there's a scene where Ace wakes up in the morning. And we've been told in episode one that uh, Gabriel Chase is a very terrifying place after dark. And, you know, that's when they arrive. They arrive after the uh, day staff have left and the night staff are on. Uh, but then Ace uh, is asleep and she wakes up and it's lit so that it looks like it's the yes. morning. Oh, and Mrs. Yeah. Gross, Mrs. Gross, who's like, uh, you know, the head maid during the day, who's just delightfully normal. <laughs> you know, she's just like a normal person. Is bringing her breakfast. They're having a lovely chat. She's talking about her plans for the day. <laughs> and then we realise that it's, you know, very nearly 6pm. And, you know, we're not going to get the day. But more importantly than that, while she's been asleep, the doctor has been going around setting Mm -hmm. things up 
And the big cliffhanger to episode two is the result of something that, that the Doctor has organised while Ace has been asleep. Mm. And you're right, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Yeah. He is still sort of prodding and poking, but he is manipulating in a way that a Doctor Who story wouldn't normally do. Like, the narrative normally follows the Doctor. We normally get to see what the Doctor mm. does. Mm-hmm. But here the Doctor does a whole bunch of stuff uh, which we don't get to see because the companion's asleep and we're following her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, it just sort of adds that sort of extra character depth to Ace because I think, you know, we have uh, someone who maybe sort of is paralleling the story of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion where we have, you know, someone who is, is being trained to become something else. He even calls her Eliza jokingly at one point. <laughs> he does, really yes. And, of course, the other reference, you know, Ace as akin to Alice in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, I think is, is evident there as well. You know, we, we have this sort of impossible playhouse almost and strange world filled with fantastical creatures and, and animals and characters that are presented to us in Ghostlight too. So I think, you know, it's sort of steeped in Victoriana Ghostlight, but it's also something that sort of is mirrored in, in Ace's story here as well. The cliffhanger to episode one is the big Alice in Wonderland moment because, of course, Alice falls down a rabbit hole, mm. which is something that the Doctor refers to that lift as in the dialogue, and then uh, enters a sort of fantastical world full of dressed animals, yes. you know, and dressed animals is, is how I think maybe carol himself describes the characters in wonderland you know when he's mm. he's um when he talks about them um and so you've got you know these sort of weird praying mantises and things in sort of evening dress yeah. and 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 the eliza doolittle thing of course is paralleled by ace's relationship with control you know mm. the the eliza doolittle thing is is hugely problematic obviously because uh, you've got an upper-class Victorian gentleman uh, who uh, is, you know, in some real sense responsible for the the poverty and the lack of education of the mm. people underneath him, um, cri- critiquing those people for being poor and undereducated and, you know, manipulating them and trying to teach them. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why the Dr. Leela relationship is sometimes... Sure. A yeah, you know, like a bit unpleasant. And it's what the Doctor's doing with Ace as well. And we've seen already that that has an edge to it. But then Ace turns it around and brings up control. And that's full of references to Pygmalion. Um, yes. lady. Yeah, yeah. You know, spare a far- farthing governor, <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. Go on, try again. The rain in Spain falls mainly down the drain. The rain in Spain falls mainly. And of course, um, you know, it turns that on its head by having, well, maybe it doesn't, maybe it tracks Pygmalion exactly where, um, uh, you know, Control does become a lady and takes over, you know, s- starts to sort of run the place a bit mm. because there's a whole heap of sort of stuff about, you know, the Victorian sort of view of the world, the idea that at the top of the heap is the landed Victorian gentleman, mm. you know, not just the social heap, but also the evolutionary mm-hmm. heap, you the know, the reason civiliser and... Yeah, and- yeah. And so you've got, you've got, you know, Redfuss Van Cooper, who's a Victorian <laughs> adventurer, who's been 
um, you know, wandering through Africa and meeting the natives. You've got, you know, an intermediate sort of rung on the evolutionary ladder in Nimrod. You've got the fantastic Reverend Matthews, who's sort of angry about the whole thing and, and light as well. Like the whole thing that underpins this story is the idea of evolution, not as it really is, not as we understand it now, but as it was understood then as a kind of... Uh, I want to say cursus honorum, a kind of a kind of um, a, a ladder, I guess, with people like uh, Josiah Samuel Smith at the top, and then all the way down through lesser white people, and then coloured races, and then you know animals, and all of that underlies the whole sort of you know Victorian worldview, and. Here it's made flesh, it's kind of made real. It's it's the way that evolution seems to operate in this story. And they don't really understand how evolution works. <laughs> yeah. no, well, no one on TV does. But I think you're right there, Nathan. It's it's a very Victorian discourse, and and Victorian discourses seem to be sort of upheld and critiqued and examined in the, in this particular mm. story. It's also the time, don't forget, that the British Empire expands to cover three quarters of the world, and there's that you know that cheeky little reference that uh, this, um, the McCoy's doctor makes to that as well. No discipline, result, confusion, wastage. I can provide a new order, wealth, prosperity, confusion, wastage, tyranny, bunt toast. Till all the atlas is pink. But there's also, I think, a sort of subversion of many of those Victorian tropes as well, like the the cuddly um, sort of animals in suits turn out to be horrific representations of insectoids in tuxedos at the end so, of episode one. That's so Victorian that it's like, um, you know, you've got your undesirable relatives and you've kept them in the basement. <laughs> you know, like, you've kept them in the basement and he's got his, like, old husks. He's, they've dressed him up in evening wear. Yeah, Why are they dressed in evening wear? It's so great. Because and, he's, and he's got control, you know, his ultimate, oh, his ultimate like, embarrassing relative. Locked in the basement, that's like a secret. You know, we mentioned Control has been Pygmalion, but it's also, I think, the Elephant Man as well, you know, something that is... a huge bump. (laughs) Exactly right. And this is what Ghostlight does really well, is to sort of tackle those Victorian ideas and really sort of stand them on their head by perverting them somewhat. You know, we talked also about Redford's Fen Cooper. Please. I mean, that's just an amalgamation of so many of those. You know, James Fenimore Cooper, in terms of the uh, name itself, who wrote Last of the Mohicans, we have reference to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, and that's very much, you know, the genre of the exploration of, in this case, Africa. And I think it's, in my mind at least, that that link to H. Ryder Haggard's, rather, Lost World genre of writing, you know, King Solomon's Mind and She and all of those sorts of things about, you know, the British sort of expansion and imperialism into into Africa as well is sort of implicitly critiqued through that character too, and he's made out to be almost ridiculous. You know, his his t- talks about the interior and you know, I love that. <laughs> but of course, but he's referring to the interior of the house, not yeah, to not, not Africa. to Africa. Yeah. Redfuss had some stories. The pygmies from the Aluti forest led him blindfold for three whole days through uncharted jungle. They took him to a swamp full of giant lizards like giant dinosaurs. Do you know, young Conan Doyle just laughed at him. <laughs> well, there's doctors for you. That wouldn't be a Chinese family piece, would it, by any chance? We're two weeks out of Zanzibar. I must find Redfuss. Tell me what else you found. Nothing. Describe it. It's all right. I'm a doctor. Yes. There was light. A bright light. Burning bright in the heart of the interior. There's so much Victorian colour, and but you're right about that subversion, I think, like like with um even with Nimrod, how they've got the, the mm. savage... 
uh, dressed up in a tuxedo, and he's now he's a servant, which is even more insulting. Yeah. But um, and but at the end, by the end, by the end of the story, he's in it for himself. Like he doesn't step in to save save his save his master or even the god that he worships. In the end, he's mm. he's piloting a spaceship and he's in it for himself, yeah. which I love. I love that ending. All of the people who are previously further down the ladder are the ones who yeah. sort of survive and inherit, set off yeah. on their own. That's true. Yeah. That thing, you know, they 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 inherit the position of the upper classes. Because they turn out to actually be the more evolved. Yeah. Or at least the more adaptable to, to evolution. Yes. They're not the ones who sort of maybe rest on their laurels at the, at the, the perceived tip of that, um, that evolutionary point. Yeah, and that's sort of like a, a, a almost like an examination of evolutionary theory as well. You know, the way in which evolution isn't something that ends. You know, there isn't a, a teleological point. There isn't a, a you know a perfected form, be it the Victorian gentleman or yeah. otherwise. It's something yeah. that will you know claim even even the Victorian land you know landlord will be someone who you know is consigned to the evolutionary scrap heap yeah. in in time to come. I love the idea that this um this alien creature like has somehow evolved literally into a Victorian is trying to get. The end goal is to be a Victorian gentleman. And beyond even yeah. that, Emperor of, of yeah. Britain. <laughs> yeah, that's, true, yeah. that's so great. And so it all leads to these sort of fabulous things where you get these, you know, like aliens and insects and stuff all sort of wandering around in lovely suits and, you know, inviting each other to dinner <laughs> and, yeah. and sort of just sort of being terribly charming and things. And it is so strange and sort of so absurd. Um but it's also just kind of wonderfully funny as well. Yeah. And there's a fabulous reference to Hitchhiker's Yes. Yeah. I love that. They put that in there. It's great. It's, it's very knowing. There's so much dialogue that's sort of, you know, dropped in here in a very sort of subtle way. And they're incredibly clever. And the first time around, you probably miss more than half of them. You know, there's... Oh, well, you can't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> that was something that Bridget really complained about, the music being louder than the uh, the dialogue. Yeah. I love all the, the inviting to... The I love all the inviting to dinner in the midst of all this like horrible chaos. They they still find time to sit down <laughs> to a lovely dinner at the, at the end with the soup. There's the, the sort of reference to like primordial soup, uh, and then they realize that it's it's the inspector and uh, yeah, the cream of Scotland. <laughs> that cream of Scotland yard yeah. line had me stitches, man. Yeah. That's so gross. But yeah, there's so many of those. You know, uh, Ace asks, "Where's Nimrod?" And he he says, "Come see a man about a god." <laughs> just that wonderful wordplay just happens all the way throughout. It's so clever, and it actually rewards the rewatching of. That, not least because maybe you can't hear it the first time around, but more so because uh, it, the, you sort of pick up more and more on the resonance of those those clever little lines. It's it's beautiful that way. Uh, and I think another aspect of this sort of Victorian discourse or Victoriana that we we see here is that sort of repressed feminine sexuality, um, particularly in the characters of Gwendolyn, uh, but also Ace as well, and the sort of uh, friendship that they strike up as well. I mean, the, the most clearest example I think is you know the the drag that the uh, the, the tuxedos into into which they change for dinner i also think that there is a really creepy kind of sexual relationship between her and josiah samuel smith like he's she straddles him you know they leer at each other it's almost like he's grooming her yeah it's it's actually quite unpleasant too um you know it's it's there when he's sort of old josiah samuel smith and then he sort of sheds off another husk and becomes sort of young and vital and his sort of final evolved form mm. and it, there is a real kind of sort of sexual charge between them and it's kind of awful. I mean, it's awful enough when he's her guardian and she's his ward, mm. but when we learn later that she's uh, actually, you know, the 
daughter of the master of the house whom he's killed and well, supplanted. Killed. She, yeah, she's killed. Actually. Oh, that he's was made so chilling when yeah, uh, she when sent him out to Java. She did it. That's awful. Uh, yeah, you know that he's the sort of cuckoo in the nest, and he's he's sort of come and taken over and. And he's controlling everyone in that sort of mechanical way. And part of what he does to her is have her sexually attracted to mm. him. And yeah, they're all kind of hypnotized, aren't they? Same with Mrs. Mm. Mrs. Pritchard and mm. Gwendolyn. To the point where they forget who they actually are. Mm. Um, but do we think, I, I'm not sure, but the, the metaphor of Java, do you think that's something that might be a representative of... of of sexuality or at least like a devolved base of form because sometimes they insinuate that that means people have been just straight up killed but then sometimes it means that they've been devolved like like um like with the reverend matthews being turned into kind of like a chimp creature yeah but i think there's almost like an element of we sort of shed the victorian veneer if you like uh and and the sort of human animal comes out from underneath and and i i see that in the way that uh, gwendolyn gets particularly excited about sending people to java it's almost like a sexual (laughs) act uh, and very violent as well mm. she, when she's when she fights with um, with Ace. She's trying to kill Ace basically. Yeah, and she's getting off on it. Like, yeah, like it's very evident that they've said, you know, they've given her some direction yeah. there as to what she's getting out of that. She's getting some sort of thrill. I think it's actually the last scene that's shot. I could be wrong, but the last scene that's ever shot is the scene between. Mrs. Pritchard and Gwendolyn, it is, yes. where um, she says something about that she's sort of morally culpable, hmm. that it's not just that she was uh, enjoying it because she was hypnotised, but the, there was something of her in that too. Yeah. And, you know, that both of them kind of deserve what, yeah. what ends uh, up happening you're, to them. You're lost child, we both are. Mama. Oh, my dear. Oh, my dear. We were so happy once. Do you remember riding down to the village with your father? The dogs running behind barking. And then he went away. To Java. You sent him. Mama, I thought you were lost. Oh, I am, my dear. We both are. Mama, what have we done? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that whole thing is really quite bleak, and it's mm. not sort of it's it's not in your face bleak. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a sort of sitting back and thinking about the implications of it afterwards, sort of bleak. You know, we've talked about how dark it is, um, but it doesn't seem that way. I think probably as you're first watching it, you know, the strangeness of it is the big impression that you get Mm. and the fact that it's sort of really witty and clever. But, you know, when you sit back and think about it afterwards, you know, it's quite bleak, I think. Um, I was going to add to that. I think, you know, we see that really clearly uh, in terms of the, uh, you know the sexualized nature of Gwendolyn. You know the the scene, as you say, Dan. You know the, the direction on the on the bed uh, in particular. But there's also that scene between them behind the screen where they're changing as well. And there's 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 an element there as well. I think. Yeah, there's, it's almost it's almost as if they're sort of you know, trying on each other's clothes and maybe getting a, a little bit handsy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the first big event, of course, that happens in the story is the arrival of Reverend Matthews, and he's sort of turned up. Uh, he's a sort of clergyman with these sort of ludicrous mutton chops and he's played by 
um, the guy who played the cabinet. John Nettleton, yes, minister. Yes, I love him. Yes, minister. He's so wonderful. <laughs> he is. And, uh, of course, um, you know, introducing the he's the one who introduces the idea of evolution. You know, Josiah Samuel Smith is a, a worse scoundrel Dumb. than Darwin. <laughs> and, uh, and he has all of these sort of theories. And he's sort of, he's just wonderfully incensed the entire time uh, at literally everything. You know, like he's uh, appalled by what Ace is wearing and, <laughs> and uh, all of that, you know. Um, and he's really, really sort of terrifically wonderful. And he does sit down, doesn't he, with Josiah Smith to debate, you know, evolution. And the doctor even makes fun of him too. He mean like because they, that's what he's there for, right? To actually sit down and have and have it out about evolution. It's but what never Victorian gentlemen do. But they never actually get to have it. They never <laughs> actually get to do it, right? Well, he's asleep when um when just when the flaky Josiah starts coughing him awake, uh, and they almost start to have that conversation. But and then uh, he's sent to Java. Yeah, go straight to Java, baby. <laughs> And in just the most fabulously ironic way, you know, like he ends up stuffed in a glass case like so many Victorian museum specimens Mm. are. (laughs) And he's he's got a banana in his hand. And in fact, that that fantastic scene where he's... Because they do slightly have the conversation, don't they? They They hand him the banana Mm. and he says, man has been the same (laughs) since he stood in the Garden of Eden (laughs) while he's peeling a banana looking like... And, 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 and about to turn into yeah, an yeah. So, here you are at last. Haven't I been kept waiting long enough, Reverend Matthews? I perceive you are a sick man, sir. Divine retribution for your blasphemy, perhaps. It will pass. And so will your unholy theories of evolution. <laughs> It's a complete absurdity that the line of my ancestors can be traced back to a, a protoplasmic globule. Please, go on. Man has been the same, sir, since he stood in the Garden of Eden. And he was never, ever a chattering, gibbering ape. And then he brings his hands into shock ah, and yes, they're all that's, hairy. Yeah. So scary. That scared the hell out of me. When, especially the, oh, the yeah. scene where, um, is it Gwendolyn and Mrs. Pritchard are under the sheet? They take the sheet off and that's creepy enough. But then they take the, the sheet off of the glass case. And the Dr. and Ace don't really even seem that freaked out by it. That scared the crap out of me <laughs> that when I was a child. Ace I'll never forget that, that, that shot. It's so yeah, scary. she says she's going to be sick. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, you know, this is me coming from uh, having studied history for a long time. The whole uh, church being upset about the origin of species is is more of a backward construction. At the time of Darwin's original theories, yeah. uh, the church wasn't actually that upset. They were more intrigued. Oh, wow. I mean, evolution had actually been a thing for a long oh, time. Before Darwin, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. No, he just discovers natural selection. Mm. Mm, um, and, and But it's not until much later that becomes a thing that really upsets the church. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, here it's for thematic reasons, right, because there's this big theme of sort of change and evolution and adaptability and stuff. And and so you've got Reverend Matthews, but then, of course, when Light turns up in episode three, he's kind of like a mega Reverend Matthews. Mm. He's depicted (laughs) as as a Christian angel. He's opposed to evolution. He doesn't like it. He wants things to stay the way that they are. He wants the hierarchy to remain exactly as it is. Um, And 
he actually goes about like he's going to destroy everything and start again like an old testament god yeah. you know organizing the flood uh in order to wipe out a creation that's kind of got out of control oh no thematically yes yeah that, no, that fits the story perfectly he is very he's quite angel angel like i never really thought about it that yeah. way yeah. Well, I think that I think that that's uh, you know that's deliberately you know he's sure. called light. I think he gets called an angel of light. I think w- when someone asks who it is, doesn't Ace say it's an angel? Stupid. Um, like so, I think he is supposed to be an angel, and because angels are sexless, um, you know he has this. He he sort of alternates between these two registers because like John Hallam is sort of big and gruff and tall and kind of really scary looking. You know he's got a super weather beaten face and you know terrifying terrifying teeth, terrifying hair and, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe really maybe, maybe we're, we're wrong. Maybe he was actually being coded as androgynous. Yeah, well I think that's it because he he's sometimes growly and kind of frightening, and then sometimes he's sort of ethereal and stuff. Hmm. When this was on like i know that you were all sort of children or not born or something but like i was (laughs) but i was at university and we just used to repeat lines from this over and over to each other this season was so important to us because it seemed really like it was much smarter than doctor who had been for a while and just so well written and that scene where he he turns around you know he's he's got a nerd, uh, 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 a maid in there and he turns around with holding her severed arm and goes I wanted to see how it works so I dismantled it <laughs> that is just so, so creepy yeah yeah. Uh. yeah no I think he is quite frightening and because he's 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 so powerful um and so angered by the world as he finds it um, that's classic Doctor Who villainy, isn't it? You know, like someone who wants to kind of Im- impose a rigid hierarchy on everything. That's kind of what Doctor Who villains are, well, and, and, you know. And even to the point where we've we've started with Josiah as our sort of our bad guy, and but by the time you get to where where Light's revealed, before, even before he comes out, uh, you sort of see that like Josiah's revealed to actually be the child, and uh, like Light's the the terrifying dad. Like he's the actual. <laughs> yeah, I love that flip. I mean, during the during the the night while Ace has been asleep, what the Doctor has done is gone down, organised Light's release Fixed in order to get him to deal with mm. Josiah. <laughs> what does he say? I may have released a tiger to catch a wolf. <laughs> uh, I, I love that, but I just love the the build up over all three well, those those first two episodes. You've got um like Redvers uh, has got he's talk, alludes to his like traumatic experience with the light. Oh yeah. Josiah Smith's terrified of like he whenever he sees whenever he's um lit by something he's he screams and he's terrified. Uh and so he's uh, lucifugus. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's, so there's all these if you just all these ways that light itself is cast as like some some sort of um something to be afraid of. And then mm. at, at the end of episode 2 is the personification of that. Uh, light and he's glowing as well. Yeah. I love that he's like so that weird eighties effect that he's like glowing. So great. But I also think that he he is meant to sort of correlate to the Christian conception of God and you know something where you know humanity was uh, developed on the sixth day and you know as as um, the Reverend Matthew says you know man hasn't changed since uh, he stood in the Garden of Eden <laughs> that sort of that idea of stasis that you know uh, the most important thing to him is his catalogue mm-hmm. uh, and it should only sort of be within that very sort of finite realm and and list of things that that Earth and humanity um, can you know can exist otherwise. He He's going to destroy everything. 
Which, as you say, Nathan, is, is quite sort of like an Old Testament God kind of attitude uh, to creation. It's almost like Noah and the Ark. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, uh, but I also think it's a particularly Victorian conception of things too. You know, the cataloguing of things. Think about the history of Australia where we bring a botanist you know, to the east coast of Australia, you know, the first time that sort of Europeans mount a, well, English people mount a sort of proper expedition here and his job is to catalogue mm. everything that he finds. And there is this sort of Victorian idea that we've kind of done that, you know, that we know how the world works. Mm. Um, you know, we've discovered evolution. We know the proper place for everything. Um, there's not much of the world left to discover. Um you know, we've just recorded an episode on uh, the unquiet dead. Mm. And, and, you know, that's kind of the source of Charles Dickens' kind of sort of ennui at the beginning of the story is that he feels that he knows everything about the world that there is to know (laughs) and he's kind of exhausted by it. And I think that that's that's what's animating lie that his job is to catalog everything everything's kind of done and for some reason we've got a three story three episode story here uh, i i take it that like lots of stuff was cut from from this from filming so which is part of the reason it's so odd and kind of confusing um do you guys know why it was why it was only three it is actually i think just a feature of the Cartmel years that he as a script editor was really good at getting people to write for him and having really great ideas and having a really solid kind of conception about what the show should be doing but what he wasn't really good at was ensuring that all of the scripts were going to be 25 minutes long when they're filmed and it's sort of standard even in sort of season 25 season 26 like Curse Mm -hmm. of Fenric I think it is is chopped to bits. There's bits of Happiness Patrol where I think yes. that, you know, by cutting the beginnings and endings of scenes, it does become slightly disjointed and hard to understand. And then here, you know, Platt is writing his first thing. He's super ambitious. He uh, knows, I think, what a four-part story is like because that's in the kind of DNA of every yeah. fan. And I think he just kind of overwrites. I mean... I think three-part stories are brilliant. And I'm, and one of the things that uh, Cartmel does and what the reduced epi- episode count sort of forces them to do is to reintroduce the three-part story, which, what, Planet of Giants, I think, is the only previous three-part story um, before Delta and the Bannermen. And I think it's a perfect length. It is. I think it's a... I think it is a great length, and there's mm. no um, there's no room for third episode filler. Mm. Uh, they yeah. kind of well, there's it, hardly any filler in this season. I feel you get rid of a lot of the space code. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But, just- but I think the other reason the other reason that um, you know, it's a production reason why I mean, like they filmed so much more for all of twenty five and twenty six. There, there is so much on the cutting room floor, especially yeah. season twenty six. Yeah. And the reason though. Like why they don't, you know, they have enough to make practically four episodes of Ghostlight. Yeah. Um, the reason why there aren't four episodes in Ghostlight is because if you film four episodes worth of story and make a four episode story, they'll give you three episodes budget mm. the following mm. season <laughs> for a four episode story. Yeah. Um, that was the the mentality that they were working in. Yeah. If they had decided 80s. to say, "All right, we're going to do an extended." 
edition of Fenric and and Ghostlight and give sixteen episodes, then they, they would have got like um, twelve yeah. episodes budget for fourteen <laughs> the next season if there had been a next season. So I mean that's the the production reason I think why yeah. you don't get an extra episode it's, when it really needs it. Doctor Who is kind of unique, I think, in programs in the eighties to be this sort of serialized thing, you know, where you get sort of serialized stories and whenever you tune in, you're only getting part of a story. Mm. And, you know, there's obviously historical reasons for that. And by the eighties, you know, they don't need to erect a set of sets and hire a bunch of characters to just do the same thing for like you know two months of television they could really have afforded to speed things up a bit but mm. you know no one is sitting down and thinking you know how can we do this show better or how can we adapt it more properly for the modern televisual landscape I think a lot of people were really scared when Doctor Who was going to go for, you know, 45-minute episodes that were a single story. I thought that people, you know, people were worried that all of that standing around talking cheaply in <laughs> corridors that they loved so much wouldn't be in the show anymore. Um, and I think, you know, a three-part story is only slightly more than a 45-minute episode and given the speed... The you know the speed at which television stories get told now it's almost the sort of same thing I think this I mean you know there's enough material here I think to do a, a 45 minute episode in the new series um, just with sort of the sort of more modern storytelling techniques that we have nowadays or to make a a, a two parter with a twist in the middle a, a Moffat two parter mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> the other look I mean. The, the, the reason, though, we never got a, an extended special edition like we did with Curse of Fenric and Battlefield was because they chunked the Yeah, they tapes. wiped them, didn't they? The old BBC yeah. wipe. God. Can't believe it. That's why you only get the you know, the black and white sort of sort of telecine footage from, from behind the scenes um, on the DVDs because... Yeah, it's they, all time-coded as it's well. All time-coded. Yeah, yeah. It's all time-coded. Really... Officially not broadcast quality, apparently. Well, it was recorded by a fan on the set or by the locked-off cameras yeah, in okay. Television Centre or something like that. So it was just a great pity because of, of all of the stories in that season, yeah. it could have really done with an extended... The one that edit. suffers the most. Fans like to say that, you know, this story would have benefited from an extra episode. We like to say that all the time. Or, you know, this uh, new Who story would have been better as a two-parter. And that's almost always wrong. <laughs> you know, most stories I wouldn't benefit from those things. <laughs> we wouldn't have enjoyed Victory of the Daleks more if it had been two episodes <laughs> long, I can we assure you. We would have enjoyed it more if it had been five minutes long. <laughs> but... Uh, but here, I think there is enough material here. I guess what you wouldn't get is the sort of fabulous kind of three-act yeah. structure. We should yeah, it's just straight up three acts, like mm. divided yeah. Yeah, perfectly. Because that was going to be my question, I guess. Would this have, have, have benefited from four parts? But I'm not so sure. We have, um, as you say, the three-part act or three-act structure of it, which really pays off well. But also we don't have, you know, people standing around in corridors and, you know, waiting 25 minutes for the next cliffhanger and needing to pad out maybe 10 of those minutes to, to get to that point. Um, so I think at three three episodes, it's really dense, obviously, but it does cohere. There's there's, there's things in there that, that pay off. It's There's never anything that's sort of just dropped and the, the thread of it is lost. Yeah. It all comes back together at the end of it. And I, um, I, I particularly like the fact that you're, you're kind of dropped 
you know, deep in the ocean in the first two episodes. Really deep. And then it's <laughs> really not deep. until basically the first 10 seconds of part three where you, you really start to, the first time you watch it anyway, yeah. really start to piece together what's happening. And I think that's rewarding for, for a viewer as well as alienating, but also just, uh, you know, incredibly... Yeah. Uh, incredibly clever in the way that all the things that you know you were sort of um presented with in a very sort of atmospheric sinister creepy way mm. in a very sort of um you know non-sequitur fashion where it's like what does this mean how yeah. does it all, all fit together all of that does pay off particularly in part three i think and i oh, know i don't think we need a part four i think too it's being made in an era where they know it's going to be rewatched by people Ah, you think that? Yeah, you think they're, well, they're aware that like it's going to be on VHS and stuff for people. Yeah, yeah, you know, like it, when the Daleks was first broadcast, they didn't think it would ever be sure. seen again. Mm. But here they know it's going to be part of sort of fan lore and it's going to be poured over and stuff. And I think, um, you know, I think the first viewing is confusing. I don't think many people understood. I certainly didn't understand what was going on with, you know, there's a very rushed explanation about how Josiah and control are kind of the same thing. And and control is a scientific control who's been isolated and not exposed mm-hmm. to the sort of evolutionary forces that shape this world. And Josiah has been, mm-hmm. and his job is to kind of reach the top of the evolutionary ladder as a landed Victorian gentleman. Um, but he has become a landed Victorian gentleman. He thinks he's in charge of the entire world and, you know, his um, ambitions, he's got out of control and Light has to sort of put a stop to the experiment because it's gone wrong. I don't know that that's apparent at first viewing, Mm. but I don't think that that matters because I do think a first viewing is incredibly rewarding just because... It's a really, really good-looking piece of Doctor yeah. Who. It sounds fantastic. It's super scary and, and you know, fast and witty and, and clever and stuff. It's so, so good that even if it's confusing, I'm not sure that that's a big downside to I, it. I don't think it is because I think Doctor Who is primarily an imagistic uh, television show it, sure. it leaves memories you know from childhood long into life that actually are no, nothing more than you know two or three second yeah. grabs Matthew's in the glass case is, is no, will never leave me it's <laughs> stayed with me forever yeah exactly yeah. and so how that happened or, or what led up to that is kind of you know it would reward definitely you know second third viewing and you know getting to understand how but you know, for a kid watching this, or you know, someone who's who's sort of never seen Doctor Who in a sort of religious fashion like we mm. might, um, it's it's nonetheless incredibly arresting, you know, series of images that make up this story. Uh, we, yeah, I think Bridget was a bit lost when we did when we watched yeah. it with her the other night. Um, but then it went, as soon as uh, episode three started, it sort of all became clear, and she was like, "Yeah, yeah she started doing it." Yeah, yeah but, that's um, true. I, I I even just think like I remember watching it. For the first time, I just remember just being enthralled by just the cast. Like the cast is so amazing. Hmm. The dialogue's great. Like the uh, like Josiah. I just think Ian Hogg plays Josiah. Is so he's so great. He doesn't sort of overplay it that much uh, until when um I love when how terrified he is of light coming up in the elevator. <laughs> he's screaming and crying mm. and like he's on the floor. And then at the end, he's sort of flipped flips. He sort of flipped places with uh, with control. And now he's the uh, 
sort of slave in the basement. Yeah. The, 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 the undesirable relative in the, in the basement. <laughs> yeah, and Control gets to explore the universe with the other great explorer and, and Nimrod as well. So I think, yeah, yeah it pays off that way. It's great. So. The energy will be redeployed for our departure, sir. Redfuss has the whole universe to explore for his catalogue. New horizons, wondrous beasts, light years from Zanzibar. Doctor, something tells me you are not in our catalogue. Um, and Red, uh, Redfords, man, we've barely spoken about him. I just think Michael Cochran nails it. He's just so, so great. He was uh, Cranley in Black Orchid. Black right? Orchid, yeah. 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 So they found, and he, um, I actually was super thrilled to see him. I think it was, we were watching The Crown or something. I think it was The Crown last year. And okay. he pops up briefly as the, as the Queen's tutor. Oh. I, like, <laughs> oh, really? yeah, I was like, it's Redfords Ben Cooper. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the, other, the other one was Frank Windsor. Yes. In um, that, in one of Steve's personal favorite stories of all time, King's Demons. <laughs> I, think, uh, I, think, I think I've got that written in my notes as season twenty classic. <laughs> Sorry. I think we introduced Ed, uh, who's been on the podcast before, yes. to the King's Demons, and almost immediately regretted. Why did we do that? Why did we? That? Why did we <laughs> yeah, show that? That's to him? a really odd choice. But, I guess it's over quite quickly. Yeah, that's probably why that, it was quick two part. But Windsor's the inspector, right? He's the police hmm. inspector who he, he yeah. hardly. Yeah gets anything to do in, in the story he's only there briefly but he's just so much fun like he comes I, in and he's having a great time he is but he's also just like that buffoonish yeah. victorian sort of you know uh, idiot you know that embodiment of like a really xenophobic um mm. form of, of 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 british attitudes and narrow-mindedness you know uh, mistakes nimrod as neanderthal oh, for a mediterranean and- i suppose this must be the manservant nasty looking customer <laughs> must be a foreigner Neanderthal. Ah, gypsy blood, I can see it in him. Lazy workers. What's this one playing up over? Oh, beg your pardon. He's mesmerised. Ah, no self-control, these Mediterraneans. Too excitable. Nasty tempers, too. Yeah, it's, right. it's, yeah, got, sorry, it's got shades of um, Basil Fulton yes, and Manuel. <laughs> he bumbles into this like very controlled, um, very composed... Uh, very sharply held together Victorian kind of atmosphere, and he bursts, bursts into a room holding a, holding a food that he's been yeah. he's been eating lots of food. And he just bursts into a room and is immediately hilarious. I, I just love watching him. And it, just that bit where I think it's some um, Nimrod is talking about um about the burning one, and he starts mm. he mentions mammoths, and the yeah. police inspector says tricky things, mammoths. And it's like yeah. it's so yeah. good, great. That's my that's the funniest part of the whole the whole three parter. I think for me, it's just such a great weird weird throwaway line that's just so funny. And which is why you know his ultimate demise, you know, as basically yeah. the primordial soup that's yeah. served at dinner is just so horrific and horrifying. Again, it's not another one of those sort of Reverend Matthews, you know, in the in the display case with hairy hands and eating a banana kind of moment where it's like, oh my god, they they did that to this character and it's yeah mm. like there's that sort of sublime and the ridiculous the hilarious and the absolutely horrific side by side in ghost light it's wonderful that way sophie really sells that reveal as well because <laughs> she's just about the only person who reacts you know and she gets up you know backs away from the table sort of thing and kind of uh is you know Looks like visibly revolted and I, I didn't really get it at the time but the sort of fabulous thing where the ladle catches uh the inspector's police yes. metallic, is that what that yeah. is? and that's how they realize who it is <laughs> it's so great and, and the doctor knows like at the dinner table the first thing ace comes into the room and the doctor says don't <laughs> oh that's soup. right oh my god <laughs> it's so black isn't it it's really funny it's super black comedy 
But we're just gushing about the end. Oh, look, I just wanted to, just, I just wanted to throw a, bit, through a few cast notes in there because I just love them all. I just think they're wonderful. It is a beautiful ensemble. It really is. And they work so well together in this. I grew up thinking that Control was played by Emma Thompson. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> so. She does kind of have an Emma Thompson she, kind of vibe. Uh, she plays... Uh, Julia Sawala's mother <laughs> in Press Gang. Gang. I was gonna. I can't remember her name. I was gonna bring that up because um, Steve loves Press Gang. I love she's it. So, yeah, she's someone's mum in Press yeah. Gang. Uh, Sharon Sharon Deuce, I think, is her name. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's not, isn't she? She's actually um, Dexter Fletcher's mother. She's um, yeah. Oh, is she in that? Spike's oh, mother. Okay. Sees the cogs whirring in yeah, Steve behind yeah, Steve's yeah. eyes. <laughs> She sort of turns up and is sort of terrifying and massively impressed by Linda and stuff. And then it's revealed at the end of an episode that she's actually Spike's mother. And the the next episode starts with a flashback where Spike's parents are played by Julia oh, and Oh, no. Dexter. That's terrible. It's- That's an awful <laughs> idea. Can, can, I, can, I just, can I just ask a question? Yeah. When are we doing the... We're doing it now, darling. <laughs> put me down. Put Steve down. Oh yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> She's. I. I really. Uh, just the control for the first couple of episodes. I find just really quite annoying. Um, just a voice behind a, a door that you can't really make out because of the music and because of the the voice. Um, the effects the modulation on, the on it as well. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of- There's a new scent in the dark. There's a warm, pulsing. But when she, as soon as she like emerges and starts to change, she's just great to watch. It's really great fun. And when she, yeah, the part where she. Jumps through the window. You, you come taking away Control's freeness. Control, I've come to help you and to ask you for your help. No help, it's mine. You won't take it. No, Control, no! Come back! Ah, no one gets far! Of course, if she was a real lady, I wouldn't be in a boudoir. So good. <laughs> I love that. I forgot about that. Oh, that's so funny. I wouldn't be in here. I... I just love her change at the end when she's she's Josiah's master, and then she gets to fly away on the spaceship with Redvis. It's just such a they're such a cool pairing. They become another TARDIS crew, don't yeah. they? Like they're mm. a group of people, just sort of ragtag people who uh, have been thrown together by circumstances, traveling off to explore mm. the universe. I just think it's, it's absolutely delightful. I was saying before, I'd, I would want to, I want to see, I'd, I'd watch the spin off. I would watch, <laughs> totally watch that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd watch the hell out and of Nimrod that. totally knows how to <laughs> fly the spaceship. He's <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, actually, Dan, if we mention it three times, then uh, Big Finish will put out a box set. That's a rule. <laughs> It'd be called the Stone Spaceship. Oh, the Stone Spaceship is so cool. Oh, I love it. It, it. like It's one of those sort of memories from when I first watched it. It looks so beautiful. It's just a great idea. Um, but I just love the, the image of those sort of that motley crew right at the end. It's It really kind of reminds me of things like dinosaur on a spa- dinosaurs on a spaceship where there's just these odd, yeah. what, who are all these people and why are they, mm. why are they on, on this? Um, but it's wonderful that way. Um, and I think there's, there's kind of like a you know the Redfist Van Cooper sort of character corresponds to that other explorer character that they have on dinosaurs in a in a spaceship as well. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah, 
Yeah, Rupert Graves. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I don't know whether that's a nod to Ghostlight or not, but I like to think it is. I love him. I love where they're at there. There are Nimrod's other controls. He's got a map there. They're going to explore the universe. I just love that moment. And then uh, Ace is like, we should get clear of the takeoff. And they turn around and they're gone. Yeah. I love. I love that they just it's disappeared. like a passing thought. Yeah. 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 There's no effect. There's no noise or anything. It's, it's just done, you know, with a different camera shot. I think it's terrific. Just Incredibly <laughs> cheap. And like, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? And so like, BBC. Yeah, such a great saving of money, but also just a beautiful idea. Yeah. I've never done anything like that before. It's just really clever. Yeah, it is lovely. And they have, they kind of seed the idea because, um, you know, they say light travels at the speed Sweet. of, and then there's a pause. You'd expect light, but the doctor says thought. I love that. That's weird. <laughs> I love that. That's, you know, the, the sort of world building sort of extrapolating nerd part of me sort of says, this is, you know, thought is the, the technology upon which this, this race of super creatures or whatever has uh, have founded the technology. Can I just mention something about saving special effects shots? Did you notice that light never appears in camera? It's always just a, he a always, flash of light. He always appears off <laughs> camera and it's just a physical light, you know, like appears in shot and then you cut oh, yeah. the light who's already appeared. <laughs> <That's really good. laughs> but again, it's a really stylish, thoughtful director. Mm. He's not just doing it to work within the budgetary constraints, but he's creating a really, really clear um, way of telling this story, which I just think is is wonderful. But of course, Ghostlight wasn't actually the original submission or the original idea for this season 26 story. Mm. It was actually something that uh, Mark Platt, perhaps with the um, help of Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel, um, put together um, a story called Lung Barrow. James, do you want to tell us a bit more about this? Lung Barrow, like the house in Ghostlight is basically the doctor's house. Mm. On Gallifrey. Yes, on on Gallifrey. Uh, and basically the plot line is that the Doctor is summoned back to Gallifrey by a Lord cousin. President Romano oh. or something like oh, that. Oh, really? Well, that's what it became in the book many years later. And the plot is that he ran away almost 700 years before and his family have been trapped in the house ever since. And, and you can kind of see how that evolved into what we got on television. I think setting a story on Gallifrey is always a horrific mistake. And I think it was Andrew Cartmel's idea, wasn't it, to say, actually, let's take the emotional content of this and the... F- no, who's, whose idea no, it was, was it? it was J&T. Oh, okay. J&T basically went, no, you're revealing way too much about the Doctor's back. Because, because right. that doesn't jibe with the sort of the, uh, what they call the Cartmel master plan, which is to sort of take you know they've they'd done Gallifrey to death they've done the Time Lords they've taken all the mystery away and in these seasons they were trying to bring a bit of mystery back so to go back to Gallifrey would be counter to that a little bit but I do think that this would be a version of Gallifrey that would be sort of properly weird and gothic mm. and have the same kind of atmosphere as Ghostlight and be kind of weirdly inexplicable and I think I think that Mark Platt could have pulled off a Gallifrey story that wouldn't have wrecked it for all of us at home. <laughs> I think we've been like we mentioned Gorman Gast, Mervyn Peake, yeah, I'm sure. And it's it's really you know I mean it's 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 just this sort of dark gothic comedy right. in a way. So you you really sort of get a sense that Platt is, Platt is great at world building. Mm. Yeah, um, you know you see that with spare parts. You see that in Ghostlight. You 
um, practically every story that he's written for Big Finish, you can tell he thinks a lot about the world he's writing about before he writes the mm. script. Yeah. Um, and there are some amazing ideas in Ghostfly, which e- evolved in the original manuscript for Lungbarrow, and he takes back and 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 evolves into into something much darker and more twisted and, and more bizarre. And I, I kind of like his idea of, of what Gallifrey could have been. You know, in the dying days of the Virgin New Adventures, like, hmm. you know, like they, they're like, oh, we're about to lose the license. Um, <laughs> and they're just, uh, you know, like they're going for broke. Yeah, they can basically. do whatever they and, want. And, yeah, and, and I, 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 look, I mean, I, I, I loved Lungbarrow. I mean, it's, it's not the most understandable book in the world. No, Ghost Light's not the most understandable no. Doctor Who story in the world. Um, and it's not the most fantastically written. It's got some great scenes. It's got some great lines in it. But the world building is really impressive. I think so too. I think though, as it sort of comes at the end of the New Adventures, it's almost as though this is the mystery that the entire, not just New Adventures, but also the, the McCoy and Cartmel sort of era is paying off to. Yeah, it was, it was kind of billed as like a, an end, like not an end point, but like a, yeah, the build, the final, the finishing of all these threads. Yeah, and I agree. It's, it's a very atmospheric story. It is v- bizarre and beautiful and sort of grotesque and all of these things at the same time. Um, and the revelation at the end, I'm not going to spoil yeah. it in any way for you, Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Steve gave it to me a long time ago. I've been saving it for years and years and years. And years. <laughs> the look on your face ago. just then um, <laughs> is is worth the wait. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading Lungbarrow, and I can see the parallels uh, for Ghostlight. Ghostlight and Gabriel Chase is a story about Ace and Lungbarrow, and, and you know the house on Gallifrey is a story about the Doctor, and I, I like the parallel between the two of them. I just love I just love the the depth of I of, of all, the ideas he just he's throwing ideas at the pros and and seeing what sticks and mm. it's just like like the idea that you know Gallifrey and houses are, are grown mm. right. <laughs> a bit like how Tardises yeah. are grown yeah you know which is something you know, that comes about in a new series doesn't mm-hmm. it. Um, or at least in New Adventures. Um, also, the idea the idea that Russell came up with, but the, do you remember when um, the TV series came back and there was that whole thing where travelling forward in time, t- the time vortex was red, travelling right, back in yes. time it was blue? Yeah. That was introduced in Lungborough. Oh. Like there's actually like there's a line in there talking about the color of the time vortex. It's like, what, what is? Why is that even? <laughs> um, it's obvious that like he was like, oh, that would be a great visual. <laughs> You're writing prose. Um, <laughs> like no, I mean I I look I love Lungbarrow. I mean and and part of me wishes that they made it on television, but it never would have been as good as mm. the book. Yeah, that's true. I don't think they would have quite been able to pull off the the visuals because you have. Um, you know, the BBC doing what they do beautifully and wonderfully, which is, you know, period drama and, mm. and that sort of Victorian sort of style is is bang on. I don't think, you know, like anyone can do it better than the BBC, but I'm not sure how they would have uh, realised, um, you know, Gallifrey. the Doctors. Yeah, Gallifrey. Just a and, series of rooms, probably. Pro- and space corridors, as we've said before. Which, <laughs> and so <sofa>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, um, terrible, <laughs> terrible head. Harshly lit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so gentlemen, we've come to that point in the episode where we indulge in a bit of cheese. It's cliffhangers, crackers, or clangers. Here we go. 
so at the end of episode one, Ace has descended into the cellar underneath Gabriel Chase, where we essentially find her in a stone spaceship. A curtain is revealed, and two insectoids dressed in Victorian evening dress menace her, whilst a voice off camera starts growling at her, Ratkin, Ratkin, Ratkin. Well, you know, I, I think that this is probably if I want to be honest because you know it's our classic episode one monster reveal it's super weird it's like nothing we've ever seen before because all those curtains fall down too Mm. don't they and reveal that we aren't where we thought Mm. we were and and you know the monsters are so strange and so inexplicable but I'm going to downgrade it because I don't know what the word ratkin is meant to mean and you can't hear it on the audio track anyway (laughs) so I'm calling it I'm calling it a clacker (laughs) yeah all right or a cranger. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> Look, I rat can supposed to be a reference to the fact that she's a mammal and they're insects. I suppose. Um, that's how but I. Who is she? Who is she called? Who is Ratkin? Is it Nimrod or is it Ace? No, she's meant. No, I think it's yeah. It's control calling mm, Ace right. that because she tells it to run away, doesn't she? I look. I mean, I I can't really be objective about this. Like, <laughs> I think oh, <laughs> um, it's. Like Sylvester McCoy still is my favorite mm. doctor. Mm-hmm. I you know like he was on television when I was seven, eight, nine. Mm. I, I, it, the show suddenly got good mm. again for that last couple of years. Um, so everything. It's yeah. three years of fabulous. It's, it's fabulous. Crackers. It's all fabulous. It's, it's, it's all top notch. There's not a single dud note anywhere. Um, it, look, it's probably the weakest of the two, but but it's it's also it's it's just look, it's just so dark and twisted and bizarre. And I think, a, I mean, yes, a cliffhanger should scare you, but it should also leave you wondering what the hell's going on yeah. and and it certainly does that like the rest of the story yeah <laughs> i i think it's a bit it's it's a it's a this is a mild cracker for me maybe yeah maybe a clacker i, I do love the spain sh- the stone spaceship i love the curtains falling down i love that the the is insectoid monsters which you don't know what they are yet mm. um uh are wearing yeah they're wearing victorian outfits i love <laughs> so it weird, and i yeah. think they're so they're so great and they're they're quite they're terrifying at first and then very quickly after in episode two you <laughs> learn that they're not particularly scary and it doesn't an ace like batters them with a with a cane which is great um i just think they're they're, they're it's a wonderful reveal uh and i mm. yeah i just love that stone spaceship yeah and i'm with you dan the the visuals of this are just so impressive for me they're so out just there it's great uh, it's terrifying and at the same time really memorable. Um, there's the monster reveal, as you say, Nathan, at the end of part one, which is just classic Doctor <laughs> Who all over. Uh, it works for me. I really do enjoy this one. This is a cracker for me. Ah, yeah. All right. At the end of episode two, then, most of the characters assembled in the entrance hall. The Doctor has fiddled with the clock to bring the time forward. Nimrod says the burning one is coming and in a flash of light, the doors fling open and we see light emerge from beneath. I just love... Um, I just love how terrified Josiah is, uh, and how he's just reduced to a, like a, a puddle, and he's just so, and he gets flung from the doors with the with the electric shock. Mm. And we've got everything you've got. Everything's coming together. You've got 
the 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 sort of foreshadowing before about red versus some um, terror of the light. Yes. Oh, you got um, Nimrod's uh, talking about the burning one. Who's the burning one? Like, who is that? Yeah. Uh, and you've got the Doctor working his sort of like machinations behind the scenes to make this happen. And I love that he it's it's not quite the right time, so he just puts the clock forward. Yeah. I love that. I love that. He just fiddles with it. it's not quite right, so he changes the you know, changes it. To, it's just, this is like a huge cracker for me. I love it. I've always loved it. I just love the. The, um, you don't even get to see the character, but just that, mm. that, that light shining out of the elevator and yeah. everyone is terrified. It's uh, it's not even a reveal. It's just about something awful that it seems like it's about to happen. True. It's great. I love it. Yeah, I, I'm on exactly the same camp with you, uh, Dan. And just that sense of anticipatory dread, like something massive is coming from out of the ground and we don't know what it is and we're excited for it, but also terrified. This is cracker all over for me. It's quite simple. Mm. Um, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's plays on the foreboding, it plays yeah. on the unknown, and mm. and then it keeps you guessing until episode three. Mm. You don't you don't know what's coming. It's just this flash of light, and and then you have to wait <laughs> till episode three um, to find out what the hell's going on. It, it gets yeah. extra points for not being thrown away at the beginning of the next episode too. It really genuinely changes the entirety of the story. Yeah, nothing goes back to nothing goes back to normal after mm. after that happens. Or it doesn't back down. There isn't sort of like a fake out at the end the of it. The whole story changes. Yeah. It's great. And everything has been building to this to this to that reveal. Josiah's quite confident and he's sinister and he's in control all the way up to this point where he just becomes his terror is was what the part of what scared me the most because I was like if this guy who's obviously the bad guy is scared of something else how bad is that thing going to be Yeah, good point. I love that. Okay, I think we're all unanimous on that one. That's a, that's a unanimous cracker. We'll go into the end of uh, part three, which is the end of the story. And it's it's the Doctor and Ace, and they're right at the entrance hall to Gabriel Chase. Light has just dispersed, and Ace asks the Doctor, is he gone? And he says, well, he has, but the memory link is on. Uh, and that's a reference, obviously, to the house um, being burnt down by Ace in about 100 years' time. The doctor asks, any regrets? Ace says, yes. I wish I'd blown it up instead. And the doctor says, wicked. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost the doctor accepting Ace's approach to the world. Yeah. It's like, you know, like it's, it's not her that says wicked, it's him. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is him going, look, I accept, I accept where you come from. I, I'm using your language. I think that was actually a deliberate ad lib by oh, wow. Sylvan Sophie. Right. Um, mm. Originally, as scripted, I, I might be misremembering this, but she's actually supposed to say that line. And they, on the day, went, well, actually, no, let's flip it because mm. it's it's him going, I understand you now, I get you. Like, I've been tormenting you for the last two episodes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and for half the rest of the season. <laughs> it's the rest of the season. But, but you know, I, I accept you now. It's I, I really love it. I just like, again... Not, not in any way sort of objective about this. It's just... Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's impossible to be objective about it. It's the final episode ending that was ever filmed. Mm. Um, and is it their last scene together, like, that they shot? Let's no. just imagine it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so, it is suffused with something, like... Yeah. It's, it's special. And, uh, I, yeah, I love that... I have heard that it was ad-libbed or it was a line change by the actors. And I love that idea that mm. even they're adding layers, they're adding meaning. And, like, when he says wicked to her, he's using her slang. But it's also a little bit Victorian, like, she's a wicked girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? 
<laughs> I love nice. it. It's a great ending. And I, yeah, I love how he delivers it from the uh, from the top of the umbrella. Is his chin on the umbrella? <laughs> yeah. Well, remember. Alan Waring hated the hat and the umbrella. And so uh, in his stories, the Doctor tends to lose them and he regains them. You know, this story's over. He puts the hat back on. He gets the umbrella. Yeah. And, you know, we're back to normal sort of thing after mm. the sort of three episode madhouse <laughs> that we've been experiencing. So, Cracker. Oh, definitely. Good yeah, look, I think this is a cracker too. I think particularly because I guess what comes afterwards in terms of the new adventures and the way in which the Doctor and Ace's, uh, you know, uh, relationship seems to unfold, which is one of the Doctor essentially schooling the uh, the companion mm. to take over his position eventually one day. Um, so I think there's that, as you say, there's that acceptance between the two of them. And I think, you know, the Doctor having, you know, put Ace through yet another test she has passed and um, you know she's worthy of, of being I guess the the person that um, he's trying to, to mold her into into becoming in a very sort of Eliza Doolittle way there's a real risk of this even just being a uh, one of those stock standard BBC crap joke type <laughs> endings of the you know the last episode it is, yeah. but it, they just I think the, the delivery and that little ad lib and, and the writing behind it they just it's uh, perfect. they elevate it I yeah. think it's great uh, it's been really great having uh, talking to you guys about this and getting your take on Ghost Light. But I mean, we have to get to what really matters, which is <laughs> what your girlfriend what, thinks. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead right. Like, just like we do every every episode, we're going to find out what did Bridget think. Can't wait. Now it's my turn. Damn right, Martin suckers. <laughs> Right. What the hell was this episode? That made zero sense for two whole um, episodes. Two hours? Two hours. Three episodes? <laughs> there was three episodes, but two of them made no sense. All right, we're here with uh, we're here with Bridget for what did Bridget think? Obviously, <laughs> we're talking about Ghost Light. Oh man, we're talking about Ghost Light. All right, let's talk. So you felt like uh, none of it made sense, at least for the first two episodes. Nothing made sense. There sure. was parts where I was like, why? Why don't they just tell them to leave? They don't know these people. Why are they just like giving them a room and like? Yeah, you were really floored by like um, how they walked in and um, everyone just treated them like uh, the doctor and Ace arrived and everyone like just treated- old pals. Yeah, you couldn't get over that. It took a long time. Yeah, because I thought I'd missed something because it made no sense. <laughs> isn't that part for the course for, doc- for a lot of Doctor Who? They just sort of blend in. I'm the doctor and this is Ace, and that's fine. Everyone's like, yeah, cool, whatever. I guess that's fine. Yeah, but that's not a quality that is, like, a good thing. It makes no sense. Very true. It makes it very confusing to follow the plot. Because <laughs> they're aliens from another planet or another time in this place. And then everyone's just like, cool, yeah, that's supposed to be there. No, that's not. <laughs> what, what about, though, in those first two episodes? I mean, we see a lot of crazy stuff. We see, like, a caveman dressed up in a butler's uniform from Victorian period. We have... Giant insect aliens in oh the basement. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Did, it, did it feel like it was... I don't know. Like, I, I get creeped out by it in a good way. Like, I'm intrigued and fascinated and it doesn't make any sense, but I, I want to know more. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. Like, I, I actually... I really like the aesthetic. Like, I love all the 1800s kind of, like, the old mansion mm. and the ghosts sure. and, like, the creepy, like, maids, like... I was like, yeah, this is weird, but I'm kind of into it. It makes no sense, but it's aesthetically pleasing. And yeah, the BBC does period well, right? Yeah. Uh, and so let's get back to you've seen you watched the Curse of Fenric with us, so you've seen this Doctor and this companion before. Were you like this Doctor and, and Ace? Yeah, Ace rules. She's she's amazing. She's like what, whatever. It's like she rules. 
She does say bog. She does say bog off at least twice, which <laughs> I really enjoyed a lot. As did I. And the and the doctor. Yeah. What about him? Do you like? Just his vibe. <laughs> I don't know. He's got a sense of humor, and he's not too mean. Like he, he, he I don't know. He's this. Uh, have affection for him. So this is a Titus team you like then? Yeah, definitely. They're good. Good combo. Right, cool. Yeah, they're oh, a good combo. Nice one. Um, what about like Light? Tardis team? That's a good one. Yeah, well. That's good. <laughs> uh, what, about, what about Light? The sort of Light is amazing. Being, yeah? Yeah. Because as soon as the third episode started, we because we, uh, right at the start, you were like, what's going on? You made us pause it and you're like, I don't, what's happening? And we like, <laughs> after the Sylvester McCoy does his little like 10 second explanation 10 seconds, of the, that's entire, all it is, yeah. <laughs> the entire story, we sort of repeated it and broke it down for you. And you were like, you were like, um... Oh my god! Why didn't I know that for the whole story? This makes so much makes so much sense now. Yeah. So if if, if like episode three was episode one, <laughs> well, then it's like everything came clear in episode three. So you may as well just skip episode one and two because it makes what? no sense, <laughs> and then just watch an, a longer version of episode three, and it would have been good. But you liked light. It would have been like excellent. You enjoyed the character of light. Yeah, light was great. He was so big and so weird and hammy and like golden. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was great. It's like the seventies. You didn't like the you didn't like light. No, I loved him. He's like the big hair, and he's like a big, tall, like seventies great uncle that I remember. Like he's just uh, he's got big hair, and he's why did he choose that voice? I love it. It's great. <laughs> it reminds me of the uh, Mr. Burns character <laughs> after he has that those injections. <laughs> I bring peace. I bring peace. <laughs> right? Except for he doesn't. Like he he just brings the power of making everyone a statue and dying. Oh yeah. <laughs> Speaking of statues, uh, what about what about Gwendolyn and uh, Mrs. Pritchard? So I didn't really understand their whole characters really until the end either. So the whole time I was just like, Ugh. but yeah, I think she was a good character. You know who I did like though? <laughs> Control. <laughs> you spent the first two episodes going, "Who the hell is this jerk in the basement?" <laughs> right? Because it made no sense until the third, third episode, episode when you find out she's a controller, <laughs> as in the control of the experiment. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, you know. <laughs> the experiment and the control. Oh, oh Wally! Well, he likes that too. That's Wally. He enjoyed Ghost Light. That's our cat, Wally. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he just left after the first two minutes, like, yeah. like a normal person would, because it makes no sense. Too many stuffed animals. Yeah. He's like, I'm out of here. He was just like, no. Um, but yeah, control was really awesome. I know. I like, like the. It. I like that idea. You know that. You know, time has gone on for so long, and she's in the basement in the dark, but she still evolves. Hmm. You know, she wants to be a lady because <laughs> she can see it through the crack. She don't can we see all? her future. Yeah. Well, don't we all? You got a bob haircut today. So I don't even know. <laughs> oh my god! We'll put that in the show notes. That's a low blow. <laughs> Send low. a photo of you, and then we can have a poll. That'll be in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> but yeah, I thought that was really clever. I like that. I like that when the when the science actually intersects with Doctor Who, and there's like intelligent mm. sci-fi, where it kind of like I know gives you some meat hmm. to the bones. Where yeah. it, you know before it just felt like eh, I'm just gonna pile all this random stuff in there. Yeah, make the bugs come to life. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like at the end, you're like, oh, okay, so it's our like evolutionary history and like. Things are awoken. He's upset in, because in the evening, for some reason, that I still don't really. That's understand. why he liked the light because he was upset that um, things kept changing, so he couldn't catalog them properly. 
Yeah, he's kind of a bit OCD. I like that about him. <laughs> <laughs> you feel empathy for him. But then you're like, I'm gonna, he's going he's gonna to destroy the world because like, ah, things keep changing. But they're like, you're changing light. And he's like, what? And then he's like, <laughs> Yeah, it did seem a little bit easy, didn't it? He's just like, hey, uh, you're changing, man. And he's like, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself. And you're like, well, cool. <laughs> On to the next adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Tragic character. So, um, all right. So, you enjoyed Ghost Light? Yeah, I did. I like ghosts. <laughs> cool. Would you I like ghosts, but I don't believe they're real. How does that work? Mm. How do you, like, not believe in a thing, but then love them? And they still scare me, even though I don't believe in them. <laughs> I must believe in them sure. at some level. But I know that ghosts aren't real, because that's just so crazy. As if. You know what I mean? I get it. I get it. I, I like Doctor Who, but I don't think it's real. Yeah, that's a crucial <laughs> distinction to make with a lot of uh, a lot of people. Um, but uh, what about uh, Ace's um, what about Ace's storyline, her arc of um, going back into her past, uh, which is this timeline's future? That was actually years. really cool. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I like what you said about this doctor. How he kind of like acts in some way as a counselor, tries to like get her over hurdles. Because you mm. see that in the Curse of Fenric as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know. I kind of I, I enjoyed that. It gives it extra, extra levels. Mm. Like, I like this TARDIS team. What can I say? Nice. Cool. There's meat on those bones. Yeah. So, do you think that this TARDIS team is kind of like a template for maybe what we see in New Who, where there's a lot of focus on the character and their emotional development and their family and backstory? Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Because you don't get that in earlier companions no you don't do you no you were saying that Bridget at the start of it really in the first episode you were saying this feels a lot more modern than a lot of Doctor Who that I've watched yeah 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 and I was trying to figure out why hmm. but it's a, maybe that because is this the last the last yeah the last, last story season. recorded before the yeah. new reincarnation of Doctor Who so yeah. maybe mm. they've they've taken it from here and built on it sure. so maybe that makes more sense because it's the next one from this kind of story hmm but it does actually feel quite familiar with pace as well. And like, I know this one makes less sense than modern Doctor Who. <laughs> I mean, that's really the number one thing you could say about this story, especially to a person, someone who's new to it. It makes no sense. Until the third episode, then it makes complete sense. And it's really interesting and cool. But you got to get there. <laughs> yeah, you're okay. Yeah. So would you, on the whole though, but would you yeah, recommend yeah, uh, like Ghost Light? Would you recommend Ghost Light to someone who's... Um... I like this one because it's shorter than the others. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting here for four hours. I was like, I only got through half a bag of mid slice. I think this is good. Wham, bam, light arrives. We're all done. Light's right. sick. Yep. Awesome. There you have it. There you have That's it. what I thought. There you go. That's what Bridget thought. So uh, back to you in the studio. Thanks, Bridget. Wicked! Uh, <laughs> you're the worst. All right, and we're back, and that's what that's what Bridget thought, and uh, yeah, it turns out she loves Ghostlight. Yeah, that's always good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're yeah we're off the chopping block this time. <laughs> okay, we'll share the love this time uh, on You to Who. We've got a couple uh, of podcasts. One is just started actually. Uh, Sweet Dork Tim Saxby, who's a listener of ours, got in touch and asked us uh, to have a listen to his Tim makes a movie. 
which has just started actually. It's about 15 minutes long, this podcast, and um, him talking about, with his friends, about what uh, what would go into his ultimate movie. And you can catch him on SoundCloud, Tim Makes a Movie. Mm-hmm. Also, Miles from Doctor Who's line, Is It Anyway, has also dropped us a lovely message to say he's been enjoying New to Who. If you haven't caught Doctor, uh, Doctor Who's line, Is It Anyway, they do improv over uh, the top of classic Doctor Who episodes. <laughs> and it's, it's really quite funny. They're up to, they're up to Paradise Towers um, uh, at the time of recording, and they've parroted it at as uh, parrots and nice towers go check them out on itunes oh. and on twitter at dr who's line uh pretty funny uh, oh my god that's such a great idea it's a great i idea, can't Steve. wait to listen to that it sounds a bit mystery science theater yeah. 3000 yeah totally it is exactly i'm a terrible person i always talk so much over the top of everything i watch with anyone uh people don't watch things with me because i'm constantly <laughs> trying to trying to be funny and attention seeking so that sounds perfect for me. A couple of shout outs as well this month. So a couple of months ago in our Enlightenment episode, Rob from the Doctor Who show mentioned in an ad from the early 80s with Peter Davison, who he calls Davo. Uh, he was flogging pots and pans. We couldn't find it on YouTube. And, on, and so I wasn't able to actually put it in the show notes. But uh, one of our sweet dorks and all around good guy, Christopher Bryant at chap underscore with underscore wings came to the rescue quick smart on the Twitters. And uh, after we sent out an SOS. And so thank you very much, Christopher, for yeah. uh, linking us oh. that uh, YouTube clip of Peter Davison selling cannot, pots and pans. I can't believe we managed to get <laughs> It's wow. great. The internet is amazing. Uh, <laughs> lastly, I actually guested on the Galactic Yo-Yo pod the other week with Dill. And uh, if you'd like to catch that, plus a back catalogue also of a heap of great interviews that he's done um, from with people from all over uh, you know, different backgrounds of Doctor Who, please hit subscribe on the Galactic Yo-Yo podcast on iTunes and you can actually also catch Dylan on his Twitter at Galactic Yo-Yo pod. That's all one word. All right, so we're, we're just about done. Uh, so Steve, um, the Sweet Talks, just in case you didn't know, we do record out of order. Mm. So uh, what's coming up in the next podcast is actually a mystery to me as well as to you. <laughs> so Steve, will you, will you let us know? It's Genesis of the Daleks. Mm. We're going back to Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor with Sarah Jane Smith. It's a big one. And Harry Sullivan. Mm. It's Hinchcliffe and Holmes. It's season 12. It's one of the all-time classic mm. stories of Doctor Who. It's a six-parter as well. So it's strap fun. in. I can't wait to get that. I haven't actually watched that, that story in so long. So I can't uh, wait to sit down and watch that with you. Good o. Okay, so we also should very much thank our guests, oh. James Selwood and Nathan Bodley from Bondfinger and also Flight Through Entirety. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Such a pleasure. Yeah, it's always great. <laughs> we love catching up with you guys. So thank you very much. So you, and you guys are, um, you, so you guys are currently recording a new season of Flight Through Entirety. Yeah, as usual, we're kind of uh, kind of working our way around various overseas trips and things, which <laughs> seems to always happen to us. But uh, we're um, recording uh, series one, Christopher Eccleston series, uh, mm. and having a lot of fun. We're having some guests um, ah. and stuff this season, uh, and uh, I think it's going to be good. But you, who knows when this comes out? Um, but you may have to wait for it, or it may be already over. Who can say? <laughs> and you've got some of the uh, some of the guys from FTE who've come back, and you, but you're kind of driving it now. Well, yeah. So Brendan is moving on to sort of other things, but he's still going to be on the podcast from time to time. Um, but we'll have some guests and things. But the format will be sort of more or less the same as what you're used to. I think just people talking sort of bloviating randomly about uh, you know <laughs> a series of Doctor Who episodes in the sort of time-honored tradition Excellent. I can't wait to hear I it. really can't wait I've been missing it I've, I've been, been waiting I've, for months me too well. I've been missing it while it's been gone <laughs> yeah something from withdrawal <laughs> it's true and James you're joining I hear 
Yeah, yeah, he's good. He's super well, nervous about it, but uh, he no. knows what he's doing. He's well. He's I, I'm good. not allowed on the podcast. No, you are now. <laughs> <laughs> and Jen, so where can we find you on Twitter's and on uh, and on? Uh, I guess the internet as well. Oh, I've got this one. So we're at uh, flightthroughentirety.com or flightthroughentirety.sexy. You can find us on Twitter at at FTE podcast. Uh, you can get sort of fairly regular um, facts about Doctor Who at at FTE Who Facts. And uh, we are on Apple Podcasts and Facebook as Flight Through Entirety. Wonderful. Excellent. Thank you very much. You can buy the DVD of Ghostlight from BBC Online or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at New to Who Podcast and also on Facebook. Or you can even email us at New to Who Podcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtowho.com on iTunes or like wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and if you felt like clicking subscribe on our podcast or leaving a glowing review, uh, we'd really appreciate it because that, re- that really helps us get out there. Yes, please. We hate goodbyes. So until next time, I'm James. I'm Nathan. I'm Dan. And I'm Stephen. <laughs> See ya. Be seeing you. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> See ya. Thank you.